This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Thursday, October 17th, 2019. On this day in 1941, 73-year-old Philip Peters was beaten to death in his home in Denver, Colorado. At first, the police were stumped. All of the doors were locked from the inside. They never considered that the murderer was still hiding on the premises, waiting, watching. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today, we're discussing the strange case of the 1941 Denver Spider-Man, a.k.a. 59-year-old Theodore Edward Conies. After several weeks of squatting in the attic of former acquaintance Philip Peters, he was discovered and lashed out in a fit of rage. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Today in True Crime, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Now, let's go to October 17, 1941, as Theodore sits in his attic hideout, an eight-by-four-foot crawl space at the top of the Peters residence. Theodore pressed his ear to the floorboards, 
This was his daily routine. He woke up on his ironing board bed, then waited for Peters to go see his wife at the hospital. The sound of the door closing was all he needed to know that the coast was clear. He shuffled around in the small space. In truth, he couldn't lay down without hiking up his legs. Theodore was tall, standing at five foot ten when he wasn't scrunched in an attic. He had always been weak. Doctors told him he wouldn't live beyond 18. His gaunt frame had only become more so while hiding out in the attic. During the summer, he sweated so much that he now only weighed 75 pounds. And his chronic illness meant that he had always sought the safety of the indoors, rarely even glimpsing sunlight. He was as pale as the snow. With his long face and curly hair, he looked like a ghoul. Theodore lowered himself from his tiny refuge of old newspaper clippings and hoarded canned goods and emerged from the hall closet, which hid the attic's entrance. He stalked slowly through the upstairs rooms. He knew how to be absolutely silent, having done this many times before, even when Peters was home. Sometimes he followed his non-consenting housemate through the house, shadowing him, watching as he went about his life. Theodore was lonely, and though other people had always mocked him, he still longed for a friend. Theodore made his way down the stairs and into the kitchen. He started making coffee on the cast iron stove, as he did most mornings. But this morning was destined to be different. Turning around, Theodore was shocked to see Peters entering from the backyard. He hadn't gone to the hospital. He'd been working outside. There was a moment of stunned silence as the two men took each other in. But Theodore had considered this scenario before. It was him or Peters. He reached behind his back, where he had an old antique pistol he stole from upstairs. Rushing forward, he brought it down on Peter's head. The old man clutched his bloodied scalp and stumbled toward the living room. Peters was trying to dial the police. Theodore could hear him. He was enraged. Couldn't they just continue as they were? No one had minded him in the attic before. Peters was ruining everything. Racing over to the living room, Theodore brought the pistol down on Peter's head once more. This time, the old handgun broke apart with the effort. As the older man fell to the floor, Theodore was sure that he was unconscious. He moved back to the kitchen where he took the coffee off the stove. What was he going to do? The safest thing was probably to just leave, but why should he have to go? No one else was using the attic. Neither Peters nor his wife noticed the little bit of food he stole. His heart jumped in his chest as Theodore once again heard the phone dialing. This time it was coming from Peters' bedroom. Theodore was absolutely livid. He looked around and saw an iron stove tool sitting nearby. Brandishing it, he stalked toward the bedroom. When he found Peters, still bleeding from his head, once again trying to dial police, 
Theodore let out a yell and smashed Peters over the head with the tool. He kept going, striking Peters over and over. Blood splattered the ceiling, the carpet, the walls. When he was done, Peter's head was caved in. He was dead. All Theodore could think to do was wipe off the tool, put it back in its place, lock all the doors, and return to his attic. Later that day, a few of Peter's neighbors arrived at the house, worried that he hadn't come by for dinner. They found the residence in lockdown, but a young girl was able to pry open a window that had a screw loose. The other neighbors waited outside, expecting her to open the door with Peter's in tow. But instead, there was only silence. And then, terror. The girl let out a blood-curdling scream. Next, we'll discuss how Theodore was able to stay hidden for so long and what happened once he was finally found. Now, back to the story. Theodore Conies lived a sad life. Always a sick and gangly child, he was mocked and never fit in. When he tried to join the army, he was rejected. When he didn't die at age 18, as doctors had predicted, he wandered through homeless camps and took odd jobs. One of those jobs was teaching mandolin to the Denver Mandolin Club in 1912. This is where a young Theodore first met the Peters family and shared his history of destitution and poverty. Philip Peters could hardly imagine that several decades in the future, this man would kill him. The years passed, and Theodore continued to try and make ends meet, but his lot never improved in life. Whether this was due to continued societal prejudice toward his condition or his own personal failings is unclear. But he returned to Denver in April 1941 and sought out the Peters family once again. He asked for charity, but Peters had none to give. His wife had recently broken her hip and was recovering in a lengthy hospital stay. Though this was disappointing news, it presented an opportunity for Theodore. Whether he struggled with this decision is unclear, but in September of 1941, Theodore walked by the Peters residence and, finding it empty and unlocked, helped himself to some food in the kitchen. As he explored the house, he found the door leading to the attic. It was a small opening, but someone as gaunt as Theodore could slide inside. As the days and then weeks went by, he became an expert at taking just enough food to where Peters wouldn't notice. And eventually, he knew the layout of the house well enough to where he could walk around when Peters was home without being noticed. Not only was Peters the only one in the house, but he was frequently out visiting his wife in the hospital. And when he was home, it's possible he stayed confined to the living room and the bedroom. 1941 social conventions dictated that men stay out of the kitchen and allow women to cook. And indeed, with his wife gone, Peters was going to the neighbors for meals. This meant that Theodore often had the kitchen to himself. 
And while it may seem that the murder was the climax of the story, the crime actually didn't end there. Peters was killed on October 17, 1941, but Theodore wasn't caught until July of 1942. For eight months, he continued to use the attic as his home, terrorizing Mrs. Peters, her nurse, and the neighbors. All claimed to see a ghoulish figure in the window, or a man chattering his teeth at the bottom of the stairs. It was decided that the house was thoroughly haunted, and Mrs. Peters went to live with her son in a different city. However, the police maintained regular patrols around the house, and in July 1942, spotted the ghostly figure in one of the windows. Two patrolmen burst into the house, running up the stairs just in time to see a pair of feet disappearing into the attic. One patrolman reached out, pulling Theodore down onto the floor. His ruse was finally ended. Psychological analysis of Theodore is difficult, as there are few details of his life. Theodore's confession was fairly matter-of-fact. He told police officers, quote, Everything would have been all right, and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. He told police that he stayed in the cramped, intemperate, foul-smelling attic because it was the first time he had a place of his own. Neuroscientist Michael Graziano has done extensive research on the concept of personal space, and it actually is a fundamental aspect of how the brain functions. The brain maintains a second skin, or a perimeter that other people aren't supposed to cross. When we're in the privacy of our own homes, that constant fear of our perimeter being breached goes away. For those who have never experienced their own space, such as the homeless, the first time they do have their own shelter can be very meaningful, as they can finally let their guard down. For Theodore, who had lived most of his life in homeless camps, the thought of having to part with his private attic space may have been very painful. That seems extreme to an outside observer. Salt Lake City NBC affiliate KCL reports that losing a home can result in severe loss of self-worth and self-esteem. In this sense, Theodore's entire world was at stake. It's easy then to see how he was driven into a rage so quickly, and yet he seemed to show little remorse in police interviews. He told investigators that he was often mocked for his appearance and that people can be cruel. He failed to recognize that people included him. The phenomenon of homeless people hiding in attics is actually somewhat common. In May 2008, a Tokyo resident called police to report a homeless woman hiding in his home. They searched the residence and found her in the top compartment of his closet. In December 2016, a man in Jacksonville, Florida, discovered a mud-covered homeless man had barricaded himself in the man's attic. When police fished him out, he claimed to be on drugs. There are many stories like this, and though they're frightening on a surface level, the intruders in question rarely, if ever, intend any harm. 
Theodore Coney's crime escalated to another level, and for that, it remains particularly memorable, even 78 years later. That being said, if you have an attic and begin to notice canned goods disappearing from your pantry, maybe call the police. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 